Parapods and I'm Catherine and I'm here with my colleague Nissa. Hello. Today, Nissa, we're going to be talking about the Booker Prize. That's mm. the UK um, prestigious award for, you know, outstanding literary writing. And uh, I must say, you know, personally, the books I've read have been absolutely astonishing. So uh, today should be a real treat to mm. share that with um our listeners, and um, hopefully you can dive into some of these books. So, Nessa, you tell our listeners what we're going to discuss today. Sure. So, the Booker Shortlist actually has six books in it. Um, we are going to be talking about four of them um, because we ran out of time to read all of the books uh, and they're quite high in demand so we can't hog them for too long. Indeed. Um, you know, I don't think our customers would like that. Okay, so the first book we're going to look at is Girl, Woman, Other by um, Bernadine Evaristo and that was published by Hamish Hamilton in May this year. Uh, Bernadine is a British author. This is her eighth novel. Um, and I believe the book actually has 12 characters, most of whom are black British women. So uh, that's quite an interesting sounding book over there. After that, we'll be looking at the book Kishot by Salman Rushdie. Uh, that was published by Jonathan Cape. Um, and it came out in August 2019, so this year. And uh, just an interesting tidbit for the listeners, I finished reading that at 3 o'clock in the morning. So I'm a little bit tired. Oh, poor Nissa. <laughs> okay, it was for a good cause. Yes, and it was my own fault. Okay. After that, we'll be looking at 10 minutes 38 seconds in this strange world by Elif Shafak. Um, and that was published by Viking in May this year. Uh, Elif is a Turkish-British novelist and she writes in both English and Turkish. Uh, 17 books of hers have been translated into 49 languages. Mm. Uh, so that's the third book we'll be looking at. The fourth is my absolute favourite. Both Catherine and I have read this one, The Testaments by Margaret Atwood. Margaret, of course, doesn't need any introduction, uh, but just a for those who are new to her. She's a Canadian author who has published a lot of essays, poetry, short fiction, children's books um, and the like since 1961. Mm. Um, and apart from The Handmaid's Tale and The Testaments, its sequel, which we'll be discussing today, she's actually written 14 novels. So mm. after you read these ones, uh, maybe go and check those out. Uh, the two other books in the list, which we won't have time to discuss today, but I'm sure are equally interesting and important are An Orchestra of Minorities by Chigozi Obioma, uh, published by Little Brown in January 2019. Um, Chigozi is a Nigerian author who lives in the US. Um, an interesting fact, he was actually born a year after Handmaid's Tale was published, so he's quite a young author. Um, mm -hmm. And the book is a contemporary twist on Homer's The Odyssey. The last book in the shortlist is Ducks, Newburyport by Lucy Elman and that was published by Galley Beggar Press in July this year. Uh, Lucy is an American-born British novelist. The book is <laughs> it's 1,020 pages long and get this 95% of the book is made up of just eight sentences. I think Catherine had a crack at it but um, I think it defeated even you Catherine. <laughs> Um, yeah, look, um, I, I am looking forward to reading it, Nissa. Um, but yeah, I did run out of time. But the, the bits I have read so far are very promising. I mean, it's either a work of staggering genius or... <laughs> 
<laughs> or you know, it's um, just a really thick a Ulysses-sized book yeah. that could have been condensed perhaps to a quarter of the size. I'm not sure yet. Well, either way, you're a braver person than I am to take a crack at it. Okay, so going to the actual lists we're going to, well, the books we're going to discuss, Girl, Woman, Other. You read that book. What did you think of it? Uh, well, thanks, Lisa. Um, look, I uh, really enjoyed this book. It's it's incredibly readable. Um, and it, it's really telling the story about, um, you know, the, the people in the UK that you wouldn't normally you know, consider to be, I suppose, mainstream. Because, you know, when I think of British literature, I'm thinking of, um, you know, stories of, um, you know, novels of manor, um, you know, novels about um, the various classes in the UK, you know, either sort of the upper class political novels, thrillers, or, you know, those sort of kitchen sink type books which, um, you know, discuss people who are sort of, I suppose, living, you know, in council flats. But this is actually just really refreshing. And um, the author Bernadine Everisto, I haven't actually read her books before, I don't know whether you have, but she's a very accomplished writer. And um, reading this book is enjoyable and easy but it's um so revealing you know the characters in the book i mean there's they're sort of too numerous to name as you said there's 12 characters um they are mostly women women of color so women from the caribbean you know but you know the children of immigrants but it also tells the story of immigrant parents so you have a lot of intergenerational storytelling um you know um you have sort of elements of uh i suppose um well all stratas of society sort of queer people straight people um you know people within the arts who've been successful and generally it's in, it's optimistic and and hopeful in so many ways because sometimes when i read books about people who have been marginalized or come to a country like the uk and their otherness isn't accepted in the way that you know their their feeling of otherness separates them in many ways but it seems to me that you know these characters have found kinship sisterhood when they're you know a group of sort of a crew as they're called like girl pals and and also others too like family members people from the caribbean i won't mention the names of these characters because as i said there are so many of them in fact i was sort of thinking this could almost be really confusing and yet it's kind of not because even though the novel actually describes these characters coming to Britain, you know, from the earliest times of immigration, so early 60s, I suppose, the Caribbean immigrants, um, you know, the people of Southeast Asia, the Pakistani and Indian immigrants and people from Africa, they, they sort of somehow intersect in a way um, and, you know, finally, it's, it, it's a hopeful, kind of quite lovely novel. Um, surprisingly enjoyable. I don't know what I was expecting, but I thought it's quite a thick book. I thought, oh, I might be having a bit of a struggle getting through this. Um, but there's quite, at the end of it, there's quite a joyous sort of um, very folksy 
kind of um, uh, party that some members of this of this story um, come together and sort of celebrate, I suppose, their lives in the UK and to some degree their um, acceptance. I mean, some of these characters actually go back to the places they came from in retirement and describes a lot of struggle. You know, these people that did menial jobs in freezing cold, inhospitable climate when they'd come from countries that, you know, although poor and, you know, wanting to escape those countries for various reasons, you know, weren't exactly welcomed and, and, and they were in fact discriminated against. But it's, um, it, it does include like the whole, I, I would say, um, you know, the, the, the A to Z really of the experiences of women who, who've, who've lived um, probably in the UK from these kind of backgrounds and honestly really worth it. So what's the language like? Is it super readable or is, um, has it got a lot of like flowery prose? What, what sort of, what would you, how would you comment on the, the language? I would say um, that this writer, it writes in a, um, in, it seems like a very simple style. But it's it. But it conveys a lot of meaning. I mean, she 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 talks a lot about. Um, um, I suppose I don't know. It's it's hard to describe how you, you know you get a full portrait like a vignette. So she's a consummate storyteller because in a chapter she has described the life of an immigrant from somewhere who's, you know, um, married, had children, gone into perhaps old age. So, you know, she's describing in, I would say she um, is an expert in the economy of language. So she's able to describe, you know, these vast expanses of times in a very, um, you know, in a very uh, sort of expedient way. So um, it's, it's not, it's not the sort of language that you would describe as, it's not stream of consciousness, but it's not particularly lyrical and poetic. Mm-hmm. But, but you know, it just gets the job done. And I would just say that she's a great storyteller. I literally couldn't put this book down, Nissa. Do you know if she's the first time writer or... Oh no, actually, I think we said in the beginning it's this is her eighth novel, so... She has written many, many novels. Um, but I'm assuming that um, she has written, you know, novels that may be similar. We'll have to delve into her background to have yeah, a look. Definitely. But but I reckon this is a real achievement. And it's it's the sort of stories that normally, you know, people, unless they had, like, a huge variety of friends from diff- different sort of ethnic backgrounds would, you know, never, sort of never really know. And yet there's a sort of a real common, commonality with, I suppose, people in Australia who've come from other backgrounds too. Yeah. Because it seems to me, you know, friends of mine who are also immigrants have experienced very similar uh, life experiences. So, yeah, so, so well, recommended. Yeah. Well, actually, funnily enough, on the topic of immigrants, that sort of is echoed in the book I'll be talking about, Kishot, by uh, Salman Rushdie. So, I mean, he needs no introduction. Um, everyone is aware of Salman, the author who has um, 
obviously there was that controversy back in the 80s with the satanic verses and the fatwa, um, which affects his life even now. I remember going to the Festival of Dangerous Ideas a few years ago at the Opera House, um, and he had at the author, like the book signing, when I lined up to get him to um, sign my copy of, I don't know what the book was called, I think it was called Shame. Um, and he had like four security guards behind him. So anyway, basically he's well known, let's just say. Um, so the book, immigrants come into the book, this book as well, uh, because the focus is on Indian immigrants in uh, the United States. Um, so the title of the book, Kishot, um, comes from uh, one of the central characters who was taken on uh, the pseudonym of Kishot. I don't think we ever find out what his real name is from memory. Um, and that name is from the opera Don Kishot. Uh, and there's this handy guide at the very beginning on how to pronounce it because there are two different versions and I'm probably mangling the, the one that he mentions, but I digress. <laughs> um, so the book uh, focuses on a bunch of characters. There's uh, Kishot, there's Sancho, there's a character called Brother, there's a character called Sister, there's a character called Dr. Smile, and then there's a, doctor, uh, there's a character called Salma R. Um, all of these characters are characters who live either in the UK or America, mostly America, and are of Indian backgrounds, uh, much like the author himself, who was born in India, but moved to the UK I believe to boarding school when he was quite young I think 13 or something um, but now he's, he's lived in America for many many years hmm. um, look the book was really interesting I it did take some effort for me to read it just because it was outside uh, the normal genre that I do prefer um, I believe the genre that this falls into is magic realism Catherine you could probably talk more on this genre than I could hmm. um, but I do remember reading, as I was trying to make my way through it, um, this line from The Guardian um, a few days ago where Clive James, I think, said uh, it was one of the most overrated genres. And because I was struggling to get through it, I sort of agreed with him without quite knowing uh, a lot of the details of what the genre itself is. Um, yeah, that's a contentious statement, isn't yeah. it? Because, you know, some of the really great novels uh, uh, are categorised as... Magic, magical realism. Yeah. Well, you could comment more on this, Catherine. What is, to your understanding, what is magic realism? Well, you know, you've got elements of um, reality, mm -hmm. um, and and, um, and the magic part can be incorporated in many ways. In fact, the book that I'm going to discuss um, a bit later on—that's the book by the Turkish writer—I mm -hmm. I would describe as magic realism, and that's uh, Alif Sharaf's book, mm -hmm. the Ten Minutes, Thirty Eight Seconds. Yeah. And see, that sounds quite like what the book I've read. There are elements of reality, there are elements of uh, sort of this dream world of this, um, of I guess, paranoia about um, characters imagining other characters. For example, um, there's a ca the character Brother imagines or writes the character Kishot, who imagines a character into existence, who is Sancho, who imagines a character in the form of um, a cricket, who is his guide. So. It's, you've got stories within stories and imaginary characters imagining other characters, um, but it's it's sort of... Is it too confusing? It is. Uh, well, it, it's not confusing, but I can see how it would get confusing. I mean, some of the stories run parallel, and you can see parallels between characters, like the author and the character he crafts, um, but one is actually part of the other. Um, so it can get confusing, but... 
look, I guess once you really get into the book and once it's well on its way to resolution, you do appreciate how he's crafted it. Um, the book sort of is almost choking with the pop culture and movie references. I mean, there's, you know, he talks about Will Smith, Game of Thrones, Fraser, American Idol, um, Real Housewives, uh, the Indian actors Shah Rukh Khan and Priyanka Chopra, um, Stephen Colbert, Trevor Noah, Jimmy Fallon, Seth Meyer. Um, their classical references like you've got Troy, Julius Caesar, Athena, Zeus. Um, you've got literary references, um, you know, Narnia. You've got uh, Lord of the Rings. It, like it goes on and on and on. And it's... Do you think Rushdie is just really showing off? And... I kind of think he was. Yeah, it can be tedious. <laughs> it, you know what? I mean, obviously he's a very well-read man, right? And you can tell he had a very good possibly classical education and obviously he has consumed well at least for the purposes of that he's done quite a lot of research so his um his references are very up to date in terms of what's out there on reality tv i think he even alludes to the kardashians but he doesn't name them which i mean big tick for him um, mm -hmm. but it's oh, there's so much of it and look it's not unrelated to the story it is it does relate to the main character kishot like his obsession with television but there's just so much of it and it's, it's yeah, <laughs> it is a little bit annoying. Um, what I did love about the book was the prose. Like he has, his, his, some of his turns of phrases are so beautiful and you have these sentences that you just want to scribble out somewhere and just really, and, and you know, sort of scribble on a piece of paper and like keep for yourself. Like he, um, hang on, well, I've got some over here. Uh, okay, so there's one, for example, they were about the same age at which almost everyone is an orphan. I love that. Um, and then he talks about religious fanatics as saying, religious fanatics whose faces, illuminated by the exhilaration of their bigotry, were bright-eyed and blazing with light. Um, there was another character who was bipolar, and he refers to before the blackbird of the family condition had landed on her shoulder. It was, like, inherited. Um, that was, I thought, quite beautiful as well. Um, yeah, many of the authors that are in this category um, write um, prose, but it's poetic. It is. It's so it's it's lyrical. And there was another one. Um, I lifted him up when the women left. They always left when the gaudy patter ran out. Gaudy patter. I mean, that's beautiful. I don't I don't know. I just love that. Um, and then he's talking about a religious figure who um, also has um, the tendencies of a pedophile, and he goes. He prayed almost as often as he prayed. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's a good one. That was a good one. Play Although, on words. One, you know, thumbs down for him was when he talks about, hang on, um, he, cum laude, or cum laude, I'm sorry for the um, pronunciation's fine. Yeah. <laughs> um, he made a pun of that, like a sexual pun, and I'm like, come on, that's that's a bit too easy. Mm. Um, that did disappoint me. That's a bit gauche. Yeah, isn't it, it? it was. Yeah. Um, maybe it fit in with the character, but yeah. But I, you come to expect that from Rushdie, really, don't you? Yeah. Like the show pony kind of. He is. He is uh, definitely a show pony. Semantics. Yeah. But you know what? I just, yeah, the language, absolutely beautiful. Um, as I said, it, it wasn't confusing, but it was slightly dizzying. I mean, the sort of the back and forth and then, you know, to facilitate the sort of back and forth between the characters, he does this thing where he makes a point and then he says more about that presently. So you're like, okay, well, now I have to sort of bookmark this in my brain um, and then at a later point we'll, we'll get back to it. Um, you can also see how his 
it's very up to date in terms of a lot of the concerns that he raises in his book. Like um, he refers to the kangaroo court of instant opinion, uh, which is very true in terms of, you know, when something blows up, it doesn't matter what your uh, previous history has been. You are just tarred by the brush of, I don't know, whatever accusations leveled against you. And he talks about this character, I think, who had done a lot for like um, relations between different ethnic backgrounds. And then one incident happens and then suddenly that character is painted as a racist. Um, so I found that quite interesting. Yeah. Um, he does really talk about the op- opioid e- epidemic as well, um, especially with like fentanyl and oxycontin. Um, actually, I don't know if I'm saying that right. Anyway, uh-huh. um, and that reminded me of this article in Vanity Fair. I mean, obviously we have copies of Vanity Fair in the collection do. where they did talk about the Sackler family and, you know, the progression of opioids in America and how that filtered through the, the rest of the world. The Sackler family being the owners of that company. Yeah, so yeah. it was it was really interesting who've, after... Who've made an absolute fortune exactly. out of peddling. Yeah, so he doesn't protein. he doesn't mention them, but it's interesting how, because that's in the news, like, mm. that's a really big topic, and like I said, it was covered in um, the Vanity... Like, a, one of the issues of Vanity Fair a few months ago, mm. uh, a copy of which we have, that reminded me of that. So he was quite good at mentioning that. Um, he also makes some sort of allusion to, uh, I think he's when he's talking about characters asking other characters out on a date or um, men pursuing pursuing women, and he says, oh, you know, um, they would be considered um, stalkers. Now, I, I couldn't quite get whether he was for the Me Too movement or against it, or he had any reservations about it, and that was quite interesting. I couldn't see if he's making a dig at the movement or supporting it um, uh-huh. by pointing out that sort of thing. Where, I mean, you know, you have to be a bit more careful about concepts around consent. Yeah. Um, I wonder. Well, given his um, generation, uh, you know, many um, men who've been caught up in the Me Too movement, yeah. like, so, for example, Harvey Weinstein, have said, well, you know, it was the times and that's what you yeah. did. Yeah. And that's kind of been an excuse. So that's an interesting statement, yeah. isn't it? So I, I, couldn't, I couldn't really pin what his position was, which is, I guess it's interesting. I kind of like that. I wasn't sure if it was a dig or not or if it was, um, you know, a statement in support yeah. or, yeah, you know. It's a bit um, ambivalent. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, what I would like to say about the book is that it is, look, it took some effort because it was not my preferred genre, but he writes beautifully. I mean, yeah. you know, yes. it, that's that that was, yeah, that was its redeeming quality yeah. for me. Um, and I'm sure a lot of people out there will really enjoy his book. But, um, yeah, speaking of magic realism, you said your book, uh, mm. Elif Shafak's book, um, also dabbles in that genre. Well, Nissa, yeah, look, this book I really loved. Um, the, you know, the, the book, the previous book that I mentioned was such a good book, Girl, Wom- Women, Woman, Others. Um, and, you know, her prose is also very good and, and poetic in some ways. But, you know, I don't know, this this book just really resonated with me. This t- Turkish author, um, uh, Elif Shaf. Fuck. Am I saying that correctly? Uh, yes. Yeah, without so. knowing Turkish, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> is um, a consummate writer. Um, now, she is actually being investigated by the Turkish government, which is absolutely appalling to hear, because of the content of this book. So this book, so beautifully written, um, actually content matter is deemed not to be. Uh, 
appropriate or worthy of being published in Turkey, even though I understand it has been. Um, because the main character, Leila, is a sex worker. And for various reasons throughout her life, um, and it describes her life from, you know, in a, a small village somewhere in Turkey, the van, which is, I understand, North East Turkey. And it, the village life is described beautifully, the lives of the women. I mean, it really looks at the constrained lives of the women that live in these very conservative societies. And, and, and really, you know, just how, I mean, not just very conservative societies, but it just describes how, you know, um, life can really just take over and um, accelerate you into a lifestyle that maybe you would never imagine that you would have to live through. But, you know, having said this, it's like a beautiful life-affirming book. And like every paragraph, so beautifully constructed. Um, it, and it's also quite a, I suppose it's a bit of a cliche. Now, people are often describing books as love letters to various places. But I mean, certainly the way she describes Istanbul mm. is absolutely I've heard that about her. Line. That she really adores the book. Like it, um, yeah. uh, not the book, sorry, that really adores the city. And she makes a point in a lot of her books of... Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, I've been to Istanbul, and uh, it is a nice city. It is, yeah. But, uh, you know, I would say um, this author, you know, describes it just so sublimely. But in any event, um, I just want to tell you a little bit about the title. So the title, 10 Minutes, 38 Seconds in This Strange World, refers to... Uh, and this isn't a spoiler alert, but this is the amount of time from the very beginning of this novel, um, you know exactly what has happened to Lila. Um, as I said, she's a sex worker and she's been murdered and her brain starts narrating this story at the time that she ceases to be, but her brain is still working. And scientifically, 10 minutes, 38 seconds, is the precise amount of time, and this has been scientifically proved, that the human mind can reflect, contemplate, remember. And it's astonishing. Wow. And this novel is based on that 10 minutes and 38 seconds. And the chapters are really cleverly done too, because each chapter evokes like a sensory memory. You know, cardamom coffee is one. Uh, I think lemon and honey wax that the women use to wax their, um, you know, their legs and bodies. And uh, just various, um, you know, sensory triggers um, throughout the book. And the other really absolutely beautifully described uh, component is her five friends. So she's got... Nalan, I think, is one of her friends, and Nalan is a transsexual person, and so you can see these are marginalised characters, her friends. Um, the guy that she was in love with and who married Ali, and um, there's um, some other characters, Jamala, um, some women characters that, you know, are also people that are marginalised in many ways, um, and really, the 
it, it kind of reads a bit like a mystery in a way and, and you know, a bit of a mad cap sort of comedy in other ways. It's an astonishing read. Um, and, you know, in the last, well, in the last chapter, finally, when Layla um, has been taken to the cemetery and buried in a place that's, you know, for paupers and unclaimed companion, companionless people, I understand. Um, her friends actually, you know, want to rescue her. And you've got to read the last chapter and just see what happens to Layla. And, you know, finally, it's so beautifully described. She's just free. Wow. Yeah. That sounds awesome. God, loved it. <laughs> just bringing a lump to my throat. Oh, my God. I can yeah. see you're really affected by it. Yeah. Wow. Anyway. Well, I, I definitely need to read it now, and um, as do all the, the listeners out there. Um, okay, well, that brings us to our final book on this extra long episode. Oh, my God, we better finish. <laughs> <laughs> but not before we do our favourite book. At least it's my favourite book. I don't know about you. I'm off the lot. Yeah. It's Testaments by Margaret Atwood. So, okay, The Handmaid's Tale, uh, you know, the book... Um, Okay, so The Testaments is the sequel to The Handmaid's Tale, right? And The Handmaid's Tale was published in 1985 um, and it's considered speculative fiction, which is this sort of broad genre that includes uh, science fiction, dystopian fiction, supernatural, horror fiction, basically certain elements that don't exist in real life. Um, And The Testaments is the same. So... To give a bit of context to those who um, aren't familiar with The Handmaid's Tale, um, The Handmaid's Tale uh, takes place in the Republic of Gilead, which is um, a version of the United States of America um, after there's been a war and sort of these religious figures have taken over. Um, The state is a theonomy, which is, I believe, it's different from a theocracy, but I couldn't really figure out the difference, so I'm sorry, you'll have to Google it, whoever's listening. Yeah. Uh, the focus of the first book was Offred, who is a handmaid, and handmaids are basically fertile women who are there to procreate with commanders and give them children because um, fertility is an issue in the New Republic of yeah. Gilead. And Offred is of Fred because Fred, uh, Waterford, Waterford? Waterford, yeah. Is her um, commander. Yeah, so when she so moves... So nobody has, actually has a name. Exactly. Their names, their former names are forbidden. So when they move from one commander to another, their names are changed. Um, so, I mean, the book published in 1985, as I said, was a huge, huge hit. Uh, made such a big difference um, to, I guess, the women's movement as well. And, and particularly it had an appeal beyond that. Uh, you know, it was part of, uh, you know, uh, university courses, high school reading and so forth. Um, it was made into a 1990 film, uh, the screenplay of which was written by Harold Pinter, which I didn't know. Um, oh, interesting. Great, yeah. Great playwright. Yeah, it didn't do particularly well, but the television series, which came out in 2017, was a massive massive hit Um, and the library actually has um, the graphic novel version the standard fiction version study notes talking books uh, seasons one and two um, soon to get season three and the large print version of the handmaid's tale so it is basically a big deal Uh, so uh, and also it's given rise to margaret atwood's uh, sequel that you're discussing now you know the fact that the tv series 
was so successful. In exactly. Fact. So it's revived. In, the television series had the impact of reviving an interest in Indeed, yeah. uh, the story. Um, and in fact, at the end of the Testaments, she actually thanks the television show and names some of the major actors in it, uh, you know, which I thought was a lovely, lovely touch because... Mm. Um, you know, she is acknowledging that they had a part in reviving the interest in uh, the story. And I know um, the National Theatre in the in, in London, they did a live session where they had Margaret Atwood being interviewed on stage. Um, and then the actor who pay, plays Aunt Lydia, Anne Dowd, she did a reading, as did some other actors there. Uh, both Catherine and I went and watched that at, sadly, not the National Theatre in London, but at the Riverside Theatre. Parramatta Riverside. And absolute crackiness. I loved it. It was just so immediate and engrossing, wasn't it? Yeah. Felt so, like we were there. <laughs> Almost, yeah. <laughs> okay, so the book, right? Um, the book, The Testaments, was interesting. I know we both read it. I loved how it fleshed out Gilead further. Now, we already had that, um, those of us that have watched the television show, which has had three seasons, uh, third season just concluded, um, and that did a great job in bringing it to life, um, fleshing out the story, fleshing out Gilead. Um, this book did the same thing. It's set about 15 years after the events of the first book. Um, I was interested in what you thought of it. Um, the Testament, yeah, look, um, I really read it very quickly over a weekend. I really loved it. And pretty much, I would have to say that I concur with everything that you've said about it um yeah it just sort of it, it brought it you know sort of full circle for me and uh you know the it just rounded the story off nicely so i don't know that i can and i mean her writing's always superb yeah. and sublime yeah. so um it i don't was, think i can add too much more it, it certainly wasn't an effort to read it let me just say it was very like you said i i think i read it over like a, a weekend or you know a day yeah. or two or something it wasn't it, it was just so easy to to get through because the story was so engrossing. But the voices too. I mean, I really liked that uh, Aunt Lydia was one of the voices. That yeah. uh, Baby Nicole was a voice. Yes. You know, um, th those characters. That... Spoiler alert! Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> sorry, guys. It's okay. <laughs> you. Everyone should have already read this by now. Anyway. <laughs> We're assuming everyone is going to read it. My apologies. Um, but yeah, so the, the, the title actually refers to the fact that the, there are three major characters, Aunt Lydia, as Catherine said, um, another character who's a Canadian teenager or a teenager that lives in Canada, and uh, the third character is um, uh, someone who was brought up as the daughter of a commander in Gilead, um, and their testaments or their, you know, testimonies are what make up the book. Mm. Um, it's sort of like, you know, the war crimes records of, say, World War Two, isn't it? Say, yeah. the New Newman, Nuremberg, Nuremberg one, I was going to uh, say, yeah. Nuremberg, you know, it, it sort of really has a lot of uh, authenticity to it, you know, in that sense. Yeah, and I mean, if you loved the book and were interested in the world of Gilead, so the first one was from the point of view of the handmaids, but this one is from the point of view of the family of the commanders and the aunts and I found that so fascinating so mm. things like um like aunts where um a, a lot of girls from highborn or um sort of commander families they became a lot of them went and became aunts instead of um becoming wives and I found that that had echoes 
in um, like you know in in the past like 500 600 years ago where high-born girls would go into nunneries yeah that sort of reminded me of that me too and there was this thing about how married women would go go through a doorway um, first that reminded me of Pride and Prejudice where funnily enough Lydia um, uh-huh. says that to her sisters where you know she's married now she gets to precede them even though she's the youngest yeah the hierarchy yeah there was yeah, this, this just changes exactly there was this thing about how um women in gilead for women their testimony was equal to one man and that obviously has echoes in all the things you hear about um uh very religious sharia law uh sort of uh societies where traditional fundamental yeah societies with whatever they may, whatever form they may take but yeah, yeah particularly exactly. perhaps sharia law or other or religious perhaps, ones as well, yeah, yeah, where women's testimony traditionally was considered less of a man. Ma- yeah, many patriarchal religions, well, religions are by their very nature patriarchal, and that, that's no mystery at all. And that's a very patriarchal religious society. Um, there's very Orwellian vibes, uh, vibes I found, in like all the surveillance that's around. On one hand, you've got... Mm. The society is incredibly traditional in how they, what they eat, what they, how they dress and so forth, but then you've got this super big brother-like atmosphere with cameras everywhere mm. um, and surveillance, like tracking every movement people are making in certain contexts. Um, so I found it had echoes of that. Um, yeah. This, yeah, and what I found really interesting was that there are echoes of characters referenced in the television show, but not in the first book. So um, the character that you just mentioned before, who I will not name again, uh-huh. that character was not mentioned, I'm pretty sure, in the first book, but no. that was no. mentioned in the television show. So I've liked how she's incorporated that, obviously. Now, it, it, it's not like it's a sequel to... It doesn't exactly follow the trajectory that the television show takes, and I understand that this book will have its own adaptation but it doesn't exactly contradict it either. It sort of goes with it and it takes elements from it. Yeah. And I like that. So it still feels like it's part of the story. It hasn't yeah. gone off in a completely different direction. Yeah, the um, trajectory is, you know, incorporates both, you know, the series and the, the previous book. And uh, in a really seamless way, I thought, Nissa. Yeah. And one thing I quite found interesting, like the first book, um, you oh. know at the end when they're talking about a post Gilead society where they're studying Galadian studies. Um, they did the same thing here as well, and I found it so interesting. It's it's almost humbling where you think these monumental, um, the, these these important things are happening. You know, you go, okay, well, never in the world has anything like this ever happened. Never has abusers like this ever happened, like the ones that happened in Gilead. And yet, a hundred, two hundred years later, it's just like a, a subject that you study. Galadian studies and it's yeah yeah it's humbling really like to that. see your place in history where you're just you know blink of the eye it's gone so mm. I found that quite interesting yeah um, something that I thought would be so huge was actually yeah it's just one blip and then society moved on yeah I really like those references to the you know the studies Galadian studies yeah. and archaeology you know sort of things that had been found sort of uh, icons and parts of statues I mentioned yeah, yeah. fabulous book fabulous book I loved how really... it went back and forth between the characters mm-hmm. I couldn't really figure out who was going to be who until the very end yeah really satisfying um, end yeah, yeah I loved it you didn't loved see it, it coming yeah 
Yeah, great book. Sanyasa, what a terrific uh, lineup of books. The, I think we've mentioned everything. Yeah. Um, and we certainly recommend that you grab these books from our library, ASAP. And um, we're recording this uh, the week before the announcement of the winner, so we'll be waiting to see who actually wins, and I hope it's my favourite book. What do you think, Nissa? Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, if, it's, if it's not Handmaid's Tale, I'm going to be very cross. I think, oh, no, sorry, Testaments. <laughs> if it's not the Margaret Atwood book, I'm going to be very cross. <laughs> yeah, look, it's, it would be so deserving. But look, who knows? Um, but, you know, everybody's a winner. Yeah. If you get onto that list, you've done something very yeah. right. And obviously we've got all uh, copies of all of these books in mm. the library. Uh, so definitely check out the catalogue, reserve them if you haven't already. It'll be totally worth it. Yeah, so subscribe to our podcast. And thanks for being with us. Thank you. Oh, if you would like to subscribe, as Catherine said, you need to go to our blog, Para Reads, um, or you can go to iTunes and find us in the podcast section, Parapods, or Podbean, the app, the same, Parapods. Yeah. We'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye. Material presented in this podcast is for general information only. Any opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the guest speaker who do not necessarily represent the views of City of Parramatta Council. City of Parramatta Council is not responsible for any injury, loss or damage which you may directly or indirectly suffer in connection with this podcast.